Well, if you've got a Bible, uh, go ahead and uh, open up to uh, Matthew chapter 12. As we make our way through Matthew, we see uh, Jesus <clears throat> having various encounters with uh, various people, various groups of people. And uh, in last week's passage, we saw Jesus deliver a dose of bad news followed by a dose of good news. And something that, that I've said over the years is that the good news isn't that good if the bad news isn't that bad. And the bad news that Jesus delivered in last week's passage is that there, there's a judgment that's coming uh, for sin and for unrighteousness. And uh, thankfully, that, that's not the end of the Christian message. That's not the end of the gospel. Um, because there is good news that Jesus says that we can come to Him uh, all of us who, who have burdens and are heavy laden, uh, and that He will give us rest, that, that Jesus has made a way uh, to deal with our sin and unrighteousness, and that just very succinctly uh, is kind of the beginning to the end of the gospel, that there's bad news, that, that judgment is coming, but Jesus has made a way uh, for us um, to be found righteous in Him in, in an imputed righteousness. And then in today's passage, as we jump into Matthew chapter 12, uh, it starts off by saying at this time, so just kind of on the heels of that message of, of the dose of bad news followed by the dose of good news, uh, that Jesus was walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. Seems like not a very big deal uh, to do that, but we're told that when the Pharisees saw it, uh, that they had a bit of an issue with it, uh, and more than a bit of an issue. Like, like the Pharisees did, they had issues with everything uh, that Jesus did. When they saw it, they looked at Jesus and they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And we'll pause there for a moment and talk about this. So, so this is a passage that even though some things are going down on a Sabbath day, uh, I don't think that this passage is primarily about the Sabbath, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, but we do have to unpack uh, what the Sabbath is and why it mattered and why it's important. And so uh, Jesus was doing his thing with his disciples, going through a field. They're hungry. They popped some heads of grain off and ate some, head, ate some grain. The Pharisees saw it, which tells us that they were following Jesus and his disciples, looking for an opportunity to point the finger, right? This is just what the Pharisees did. It would appear rather than taking to heart this message uh, of judgment and repentance that Jesus had just preached to them, it, it completely seemingly went over their head. Uh, either they rejected it, they refused to believe it, they didn't understand it, uh, because they're now pointing the finger at Jesus for doing a relatively uh, minor thing. And so they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, in order to understand the Sabbath and the life of the Jew, we have to go back to uh, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Uh, one of the Ten Commandments tells us to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so this was kind of a simple command uh, that God gave to the Israelites through Moses. Take a day off. Enjoy a day off. God built into humanity this rhythm of work and rest uh, that was not at this point 
a stringent law to be kept, but rather it was for our good, for human flourishing, that we would have a rhythm of work and rest. We wouldn't just work all of the time. God himself took a Sabbath after he created, and so this is patterned after God working and creating for six days and taking a day of rest. And so if God himself took a day of rest, and God didn't take a day of rest because he was worn out or tired, but if God himself took a day of rest, then those of us who are created in his image but are not perfectly like him, how, how much more do we need to engage in this rhythm of work and rest that God gives us for our good? Now, one thing we know about the Israelites, God gave them 10 commandments, and it didn't take them very long before they took those 10 commandments and made them into over 600 rules. I think it was 611 or 613 rules that as a good Jewish person that you would be responsible not only to know all of those, but responsible to obey all of those and to act according to all of these laws and rules, right? Well, as it pertains to the Sabbath, they took this one command of the rhythm of work and rest and made uh, 39 mandates as it pertained to the Sabbath that covered many areas of light. But just, just to give you a couple of examples, um, traveling and carrying loads were excluded as one of these 39 mandates as it pertained to the Sabbath. But people were able to travel a Sabbath day's walk, which was about 1,100 meters. Evidently, this commentator that wrote this was not from America. Um, so you can figure out le- how far 1,100 meters is in feet with quick math in your head. But if you had food that was 1,100 meters away, food was considered part of your home. And so if you went 1,100 meters and you had a little stash of food, you could go another 1,100 meters. Remember, God gave us just this rhythm of work and rest, and, and this is one of the rules that they made. There was also... History records that in the Maccabean Revolt that there were several groups of Jewish people that were slaughtered uh, because they wouldn't fight to defend themselves on the Sabbath. And their enemies knew it, and so they intentionally attacked on the Sabbath knowing that these devout Jewish people who were all about following the rules wouldn't even defend themselves on the Sabbath, and so they just slaughtered them. And, and I say that just to show you that, that how, how devout the Jewish people were about the Sabbath and the central role that it played in the life of the Israelite. It, it was a pretty big deal. So what God gave us as a prescription for rhythm and rest, or a rhythm of work and rest, what God gave to humanity for its flourishing, that the Jewish people turned it into all these rules and rituals and undue burden. According to one commentator, plucking grain was considered reaping, rubbing it to separate the grain from the husks, Luke tells us that they did this, was considered threshing. Blowing away the husks out of your hand may have well been interpreted as winnowing, and for good measure they may have seen the whole thing as preparation of food, which they also regarded as prohibited on the Sabbath. You have to prepare your food the day before the Sabbath if you wanted to eat anything on the Sabbath. So, so again, you can see how, how they took this one simple command and just made it really burdensome and, and really ritualistic and, and all about the rules. And so here we have Jesus doing his thing on the Sabbath, walking with his disciples, and they just simply picked some heads of grain to eat because they were probably hungry. Now, I don't, we're not told that they were starving or that they were famished, so, so we, we don't know what the situation, maybe they just didn't have breakfast that day, we don't know. 
but they picked a few heads of grain and they ate it, and the Pharisees immediately pointed the finger at them. You're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, okay? So they completely missed the point of what's going on here. And so then Jesus, in verse 3, said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So Jesus asks a couple of questions here. And it's always cool when Jesus asks questions because Jesus doesn't ever ask a question because he lacks an answer. When Jesus asks questions, it's always to make a point, oftentimes leading questions. And so Jesus is saying, have you not read? And he's talking to the Pharisees who would have been well-versed, not only in the law, but they would have been well-versed in the Torah. And so by Jesus saying, have you not read? Jesus knows fully well that they have read what he's asking them if they haven't read. And he points into a story of David, and we know about David. He's kind of a famous guy in the Bible, a well-known name, right? You, you probably, if you've been in church for any amount of time, might even think about something you know about David right now, recall a story of David. David, as far as kings of Israel, he, like, he was the gold standard. Flawed guy, not perfect by any means, but he was the gold standard of kings. We're told that David, he was a man after God's own heart. Every king in Israel was compared to David. And so he recalls to their attention something that they would have already known, this story of David. So he's making a historical argument, looking at history that they would have been very familiar with, and tells this story um, when David and his men were on the run. So, so David was, was called to be king of Israel, anointed to be king of Israel by God, uh, yet Saul was king before David. And Saul knew that David was God's man, and so there was tension between Saul and David. And so there was this story from 1 Samuel chapter 21 when David fled from Saul because of this tension in fear for his life. And he was on the run. And I think David and his men in this instance actually were famished and hungry because they were on the run. And he comes to the temple and and not only does he do something that's unlawful according to what the Jews had, the priests allowed him to get away with it. They allowed him to eat what was otherwise unlawful to eat. And Jesus is reminding them that they did what was right in that instance. History does not look back on David as doing something that he shouldn't have done. History doesn't look back on the priests as doing something that they shouldn't have done, right? They they were caring for men who had a need, and it just happened to be on a Sabbath. So history recorded that event kindly, And then Jesus asked another question, have you not read in the law? So now he's moved from making an argument from history that they would have been familiar with. He's talking to experts in the law and asked them, have you not read in the law, knowing fully well that they would have read this in the law? How on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, yet they're not guiltless. And so he's making an argument that somebody has to do something on the Sabbath. The priests have rituals on the Sabbath. They have to prepare the temple on the Sabbath. And nobody looks at the priests saying, well, they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Nobody looks at it like that. And so he makes a legal argument to the experts in the law. And so historical argument and a legal argument for the priests who are doing God's work. 
And then something that we don't have in Matthew's account, but we find in Mark's account of this encounter, Jesus asks them a question at this point, uh, or makes a comment to them saying that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Matthew doesn't record that uh, comment, but Mark does. And Jesus is making a point that He has given us the Sabbath for our own good and for our own flourishing. And that when we do what the Israelites did in taking this one simple command and making it into 39 burdensome mandates, that we've missed the point of the Sabbath. We've completely missed the point of the Sabbath. Earlier I said that this passage isn't primarily about the Sabbath. So now that we understand a little bit about the Sabbath, we haven't taken a deep dive, but now that we have kind of a broad understanding about the Sabbath, Jesus then makes this comment in verse 6 of Matthew 12, saying, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. This is a pretty big statement by Jesus. He makes a few big statements in, in the coming verses, but this is a pretty big statement by Jesus saying that something greater than the temple is here. This makes me think of John chapter 1, a chapter that you might be familiar with that tells us that in the beginning was the Word, capital W, because it's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John tells us that all things that were created were created by Him, that there's not anything that was created that wasn't created by Him. And then John goes on to tell us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, in John 1.14, that we've seen His glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. It's important that we understand what, what happened here, that the Word, the capital W, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this word dwelt, when it talks about the word dwelling among us, it's the same word dwelt that's used for the tabernacle of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle, which was the portable temple, until they had the permanent structure of the temple. And it was just understood in the life of the Israelite that, that God dwelt in the temple or the tabernacle, that, that that's where God hung out, right? And if you wanted to experience God's presence, it would be in the tabernacle or the temple. And so in John, when he says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's saying that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God stepped into human flesh in the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, and, and the presence of God was among us, not, not confined to a tabernacle or a place, not confined to a temple, but that God's presence was with humanity as He dwelt or as He tabernacled among us. And so in Matthew 12, 6, when Jesus says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here, He's making a statement of deity. He's making a statement of who He is. And this is a big statement, right? And this isn't the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has made a claim of deity, and he'll continue to do so throughout Matthew's account. But this is a claim of deity from Jesus Christ saying that, that he's greater than the temple, kind of referring to himself in the third person. In verse 7, he goes on to say that if you had known what this means, and then he quotes a statement, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have not have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. This is another big statement that Jesus makes in verse 7. This statement, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. When, when you think of mercy, what do you think of? 
We, we might think of not getting something bad that maybe we rightfully deserve, right? That, that's mercy. When, when, when God doesn't judge us for our sins because of Christ's imputed righteousness to the Christian, that's mercy. That's an act of mercy. We, we deserve to be judged for our unrighteousness. But because of who Christ is and what He's done, we, we don't get something that we rightfully deserve. That, that's an example of mercy. But mercy kind of goes even beyond that idea. The biblical idea of mercy is loving kindness resulting from knowing God as we show mercy to us. As we've been recipients of mercy, then it would make sense that, that we would also be doers of mercy or givers of mercy, right? And so oftentimes churches uh, have things that people call sometimes mercy ministries, like our warming shelter in Lapine. People would call that a mercy ministry, uh, because it's something kind that we do uh, in our community or food giveaways, right? People refer to things like that as mercy ministry. But this idea here goes even, even beyond those kinds of things. The idea that Jesus is getting at in desiring mercy over sacrifice is that as Christians, we would be doers of mercy that results from God's mercy being shown upon us. So our motivation in engaging in mercy is not just to do something good, not to do something that's just kind, but to do to others as God has done to us to whatever extent possible. And when we engage in mercy, that, that's greater than any sacrifice that we can make. Remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are all about the law, well-versed in the law, experts in the law, doers of the law, keepers of the law. And he's telling them essentially that your keeping or your doing of the law isn't what matters. What, what matters is that you would do things because of what God has done for you, not because you're trying to be righteous on your own, not because you're trying to keep the rules. Now, at the end of the day, we follow the law because God loves us, that looks kind of the, pretty similar on the outside to someone who's just trying to keep the rules to attain their own righteousness. It might not look all that different on the outside, but, but God knows our motivation, and He's calling out the Pharisees saying that if you had an understanding of who Christ is, if you had an understanding of gospel truth, you would not be living in such a way that's all about keeping the law, and you wouldn't be pointing fingers at those who break the law. Because at the end of the day, the best of us are lawbreakers, every single one of us, including the Pharisees who were all about the law. They were lawbreakers, but they were quick to point the finger at others who broke the law without considering their own breaking of the law. And so again, a big statement that Jesus is making, saying that they don't understand that God desires mercy, that God desires loving kindness resulting from knowing Him over any kind of sacrifice that we might make. And he connects that to the Pharisees condemning the guiltless. And then he goes on in verse 8 to make perhaps the biggest statement in these few verses, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. <clears throat> Again, a claim of deity, right? The Pharisees are all about their Sabbath keeping, all about following their silly little rules like you can only travel so far, but you can go a little farther if you have a food stash, those silly rules. Jesus is telling them 
that he's Lord of the Sabbath. The person that they're pointing the finger at and accusing is the creator, the sustainer of the Sabbath. And not only that, as, as we get through our passage, we'll find that he, in fact, is our Sabbath rest. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But again, a big statement uh, by Jesus claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And so again, we have these Pharisees that are just completely missing what's in front of them and missing who is in front of them. And I would encourage us today that, that we, we would not miss who's in front of us, right? Humanity is not all that different 2,000 years later, right? We, we have a tendency to miss Jesus, and especially kind of us religious type as people you know about me, I've grown up in the church, I've been in the church my whole life, and I'm a, I'm a rule follower, I'm a rule keeper, right? As, as religious types, we, we can pretty easily get to be about just keeping the rules and, and doing good. And in our doing so, we, we can miss who's in front of us. Verse 9 of Matthew 12, it says that he went on from there, and he entered the synagogue. So, so the Pharisees were following him, ready to point the finger, but then Jesus goes on to their turf. He enters the synagogue. And in the synagogue, there was a man there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And so the Pharisees, they're, they're ready to pounce again. I don't know if this is the same group of Pharisees or a different group of Pharisees. We're not told. But Jesus walks into the synagogue, and they, they see somebody there in need of, of a touch from Jesus. And so they ask him, really, in, in their minds, what was a trick question? What are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to heal this guy on the Sabbath or what? And really, again, they're, they're missing the point here. They're missing the point. They're all about their rules and all about their laws. And they ask Jesus a question so that they might accuse him. So the motive of their heart was not necessarily to see this man's hand healed, but their, the motive of their heart was to try to get Jesus and to try to accuse him. And so Jesus, again, asked the question in verse 11, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take a hold of it and lift it out? And again, Jesus asking a question, not because he lacks the answer. Their gotcha moment turns into Jesus' gotcha moment. It would be silly if they had a sheep that fell into a pit Right, that was tied to their income, that was tied to their livelihood, that they would say, you know what, it's the Sabbath, I'll wait till tomorrow to get it. Right? They, they would go rescue their sheep. And so then Jesus, again, asked the question of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Or so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So again, the Lord of the Sabbath telling the Pharisees, what can be done or what should even be done on the Sabbath, that it's, it's lawful to do what was good. And then to prove his point, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. And so Jesus just heals the guy right there on the spot. And in that moment where history doesn't record, Matthew doesn't record, or none of the gospels record that any of the Pharisees fell down on their knees and said, what must I do to be saved? They didn't. As a matter of fact, verse 14 says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Jesus were here in our midst and, and just healed somebody on the spot of something very visible, right? This wasn't, you know, back pain that all of a sudden was healed that maybe we couldn't see. This was a withered hand that all of a sudden was right. 
something that everybody saw. And rather than praising God, the Pharisees left. They went out, so they left. They didn't even stick around. They left, and they went out and conspired how to destroy him. This, this tells you something about the Pharisees. Jesus making claims of deity, multiple claims of deity. Jesus performing a miracle. And the Pharisees it made him mad. And they said, we, how, how are we going to take this guy out? Let, let's make a plan of how to take this guy out. So again, just completely missing who is in front of them. Verse 15, Jesus aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make it known. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has healed people and told them not to tell anybody. And pretty much every time Jesus healed someone and said, don't go tell somebody, they went and told somebody, right? How could you not? Especially, you know, withered hand or something like that, very visible, like people are going to notice, right? You can't not tell anybody that something happened, that somebody touched you, that somebody healed you. And so this is, this is the way that it went with Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus is aware that the Pharisees are out to get him. And I don't, I don't think this is the first moment that he became aware, right? He, he knows all, sees all, hears all. But we're told that Jesus was aware, but he continued to do what he did. He continued, he said, as he healed them all. I, we don't know how many people that is. I don't know how many people he came in contact with after this, but he healed them all. So Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And what we see throughout the life of Jesus is that some people recognized Him for who He was, and they came to Him for healing. And usually it's the down and outers in these stories that recognize who Jesus is, the lowly of society. In the high society, the Pharisees, they're, they're, they're plotting to kill Him as he's healing people, as he's showing mercy, as he's engaging in mercy ministry of his own, they're, they're plotting to destroy him and plotting to kill him. Matthew tells us in uh, verse 17 that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah records this, Behold, my servant who I have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. We're told uh, this, these are the words of God himself, his chosen and beloved servant, pointing us to Jesus, with whom his soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Don't miss this statement. Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And what kind of justice is it that Jesus proclaims? We, we live in a world, even today, but the world has been like this from the beginning, that there's just injustice in the world because we're flawed, we're broken sinners. And because of that, injustice is going to take place. Terrible things happen. Tragedies happen in our world. And it, it's always been that way. Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that even in the place of justice, there's injustice. So whatever justice happens in this world, like it can be flawed. It can be imperfect justice. And even in the place where justice should happen, injustices can and do happen, right? The justice being proclaimed by Jesus is, is not 
necessarily justice here and now. Sometimes, yeah. But, but Jesus is proclaiming a greater justice, a justice for all of eternity, that, that sinners will be rightly judged, that those who belong to Christ will be rightly imputed His righteousness because of what He's done, and that none that the Father has given to the Son will be lost. That, that's God's justice. The justice that Jesus proclaims is a liberation from sin and death and judgment to the Christian. And this justice will be proclaimed not, not only to the Jews, but this justice will be, be proclaimed to the Gentiles. So this justice will be proclaimed not only to the religious, but this justice will be proclaimed to the irreligious. That this would have blown the mind of the Israelite. Right? Israel got God's chosen people. And for justice, God's justice, eternal justice to be proclaimed outside of their circle would have been mind-boggling to the Jew. But Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit will proclaim justice even to the Gentiles, even to you and me, to the heathen, to the rebels. Isaiah goes on to say that he, this servant, Jesus, will not quarrel or cry aloud. Jesus was totally a victim. God in human flesh came to His own creation, and His creation rebelled against Him. The most religious people of His day are plotting to kill Him. And there's never a moment that we see Jesus cry that He's a victim. He, he doesn't fall prey to victimhood. He doesn't cry allowed. Jesus knew what He was signing up for. He knew that when He came to His creation, that His creation would rebel against Him and plot to kill Him, yet He did it anyway. And Isaiah tells us this long before it ever happened, that this is the way that it is. Nor, Isaiah says, will anyone hear His voice in the streets. In other words, He's not out crying for justice for Himself. Jesus isn't hanging on the cross saying, this should never have happened. I shouldn't be here. I'm innocent. What did Jesus say when He hung on the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He's not being a victim in that moment. Jesus is a willing participant. Isaiah goes on to say, A bruised reed He will not break, nor a smoldering wick He will not quench until He brings justice to victory. In other words, Jesus didn't come to start taking names. Right? He, didn't, he didn't come to handle business and take names. Jesus came for the lowly. He came for the outcast. He came for the downtrodden. He came for the burdened. He came for the lawbreaker. He came for the flawed and broken sinner. And He came to do this until He brings justice to victory. In other words, G Jesus isn't going to quit. He's not going to quit. He's, he's going to achieve his end. And then Isaiah tells us that it's in his name that the Gentiles will hope. Again, out, outside of the circle of the Israelites, outside of the circle of the Jews, that we're told that it's in Christ's name, the Savior's name, the Messiah's name, that even the Gentiles will hope. Even the irreligious, even the worst of the worst can hope in Christ. And that gives hope to you and I. That gives hope for the worst person that you can think of. 
Osborne in his commentary says this. He said, the Pharisees have made two fatal errors. One, they have misinterpreted the law. And they have, two, they have refused to accept the reality of Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God. This, then, is the heart of this passage. The Pharisees missed. They're, they're, they're all about the Sabbath and keeping their rules, keeping their burdensome mandates, pointing out every way in their estimation that Jesus has broken the law, and they're missing the one who came to perfectly fulfill the law. And they're missing the one who gave us the Sabbath, not as a bunch of rules to keep, but for our flourishing as we engage in a God-prescribed rhythm of work and rest. And it's because of the, this is why I'm saying that this passage, even though things are going down on the Sabbath, I don't think this is primarily about the Sabbath. It's about something bigger. And I might add to this fatal flaw of the Pharisees that Osborne points out that their other fatal flaw was a hardness of heart. Because they were so much about the law and so much about their own righteousness that it hardened their heart towards God. And maybe even adding one more thing, that their hope was not ultimately in the Messiah. The hope of the Pharisees was ultimately in their own ability to be righteous, their own ability to be good, rather than in Christ's imputed righteousness. And so they, they're missing the one who has come to tabernacle among us. They're missing the presence of God in the flesh right in front of their faces. These were the fatal flaws of the Pharisees. Their religion has turned into religiosity. And again, here we are 2,000 years later. I don't know that we today are all that different, right? Our, our religion, our faith, the outworking of our faith can very easily turn into religiosity. And if I had an encouragement for us today, it would be to pay attention to that and to not let our, our well-meaning faith turn into the religiosity like the Pharisees. Our religiosity doesn't save us. Our following of the rules doesn't save us. Our keeping of the law doesn't do anything for us. God doesn't look down on us and say, okay, well, here's one that follows the law. You're going to be over here, and here's the lawbreaker, and you're going to be over here. God looks down on us and says, like, we've all messed up. None of us have been able to keep the law. And I might just ask you, like, how fast did you drive to get to church this morning? None of us follow the law. None of us do. And we're dependent, not only dependent, but we're desperate as human beings for a righteousness that's foreign to us because we don't possess a righteousness that's inherent to us. What we possess as inherent to us is an unrighteousness that has been passed down from us starting with Adam and Eve and has made its way all throughout humanity from the beginning until now and will continue to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. And the beauty of the Christian gospel, the beauty of the message is that we can come to Christ. When we understand the, burden, the burdensome nature of unrighteousness, we can come to Christ. And He'll impute to us His righteousness, which, which He's the one, the only one to perfectly fulfill the law. The giver of the law is the one who has fulfilled the law perfectly. As the Son has obeyed the Father perfectly, the Father is well-pleased in the Son. And the simplicity of the Christian gospel is that, that we would 
understand that, that we would take that message on faith and come to Christ to do for us what we're not capable of doing for ourselves. This is what the Pharisees missed. They thought they had a capability to do for themselves, but they didn't. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 6, tells us this. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, speaking of the Sabbath, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that ultimately Jesus is our Sabbath. Yes, we've been given a rhythm of work and rest that we ought to engage in for human flourishing. God has given us a Sabbath day for our own good and for his glory. But what's bigger than that and what's greater than that is Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath, that we find the ultimate rest in Christ. In Christ, there, there's no burden. In Christ, we don't have to memorize over 600 rules that we have to be responsible to know and to keep day after day after day after day because Christ has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so I think if I were going to pull one kind of big point out of this passage that today, right now, here in 2023, don't make the mistake that the Pharisees made 2,000 years ago and that people have been making throughout all of history. Today, if you hear His voice, because we've been preaching the Word to you today and we've been singing the Word to you today, and hopefully in our fellowshipping before and after, we're, we're sharing word, the Word with you today. Don't miss it. Don't miss the Word that's being proclaimed. Don't miss the good news of the gospel that says that all those who are burdened, all those who are heavy laden can come to Christ and they can find rest in our ultimate Sabbath. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Father, today we're thankful. Um, thankful that you uh, continue to speak to us. We're thankful that your voice has not been cut off uh, from humanity due to the hardness of our hearts. God, we're thankful that, uh, that you put up with us, that you contend with us in our rebellion, in our unrighteousness, in our sinful state, uh, that you continue to love us, that you continue to give us opportunity to come to you. And ultimately, God, we're thankful for those that do come to you that we will find the ultimate rest, the ultimate Sabbath in you for all of eternity. And so I would pray for us today, pray for those that are here that uh, profess faith in Christ that we would just be mindful always of our bent towards religiosity and that we would continue to center ourselves on who you are and what you've done for us, that we would be reminded frequently of the mercy that you've shown us as we show mercy to others. And for anyone that might be here today that, that hasn't yet submitted to your rule or authority in their life, God, I pray uh, that your voice would continue to speak to those people that need to hear from you and that you would open ears, that you would open minds, that you would open hearts, and that those who need to find a rest in you uh, would come to you. Father, we're thankful that we can even ask such things, and we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.